Welcome to the Just Write Show, where you'll explore the world of the written word, from books to blogs, sales copy to screenplays, emails to essays, and everything in between. You'll discover the tips, tricks, and tactics the most successful writers in the world use every day. And now, here's your host, Travis Cody. Welcome to another episode of the Just Write Show. Joining me today is Andrew Mellon. He's a keynote speaker, trainer, coach, and more importantly, the best-selling author of Unstuff Your Life. And he's often referred to as the most organized man in America. He writes about simplifying your life everywhere from Real Simple to Oh, the Oprah Magazine. And his clients include American Express, Goldman Sachs, Metropolitan Museum of Art, the New York Mets baseball franchise, and even the U.S. Departments of Education and Homeland Security, as well as entrepreneurs and solopreneurs everywhere. He's addressed audiences from TEDx to Dwell to Design, Dad 2.0 to the Great British Business Show, all the way to the Bucharest Tech Week. Since 1996, Andrew has helped over 100,000 businesses and people to simplify their work and lives, freeing up valuable time for the things that actually matter, which often aren't even things at all. Andrew, thank you so much for being on the show today. It's my pleasure, Travis. I'm delighted to be here with you. So I want to start off with your TED Talk because the title of your TED Talk is so captivating to me about how stuff robs us of our time. So can you talk just a little bit about what you mean by that and give some examples? Sure. Uh we are either spending our time doing things that matter to us or we're not. And uh, we often, if we're going to generalize about humankind, particularly in the developed world, we are often spending our time in these uh, relationships with inanimate objects that are not reciprocating our affection. They really, I mean, they either function or they don't function, but they're, we, we spend a lot of time uh, with things uh, promising ourselves that we're going to get to those experiences and those relationships that really matter to us and really fe feed our spirit, our soul, uh, however you want to phrase it. And as a result, uh, we lose time. Uh, we say we lose time, right? The, the reality is <laughs> we surrendered the time. And then we will often tell ourselves one of our 200 lies about where the time went so that we don't feel like such a schmuck because we <laughs> spent it where we spent it instead of being deliberate about it. It's, it's just, it becomes a bitter pill to swallow when we have to step up and take responsibility for the choices that we've made. And, you know, as Maya Angelou used to like to say, when you know better, you do better. So there's no judgment there or shame in having made poor or less effective choices in the past. But once you do know better, you are responsible for making different choices. And so that's really the premise of the TED Talk is um, mindfulness, being aware of the choices that you're making, uh, and not lying to yourself about where you're spending your time so that you get to the end of this experience and think, oh, man, this is not how I thought this was going to play itself out. I want a do-over because we don't get do-overs. Right. Well, the first chapter of your book is You Are Not Your Stuff. And that, that's a pretty outrageous claim for the United States, which is the highest consumer index in the world. <laughs> <laughs> So let's talk about that. What do you mean by you are not your stuff? Because if I listen to CNN, I'm supposed to be spending my hard-earned money on everything I can get. Yes, I'm sure. Uh, probably listen to CNN a little less. <laughs> they would never lie to me. <laughs> no, no, they wouldn't. They would encourage All right, time you to switch to Fox News. I'll get a better, more balanced opinion over there. Yeah, well, yeah. They'll, just, they'll just be sending you probably to Walmart instead of to... Neiman oh. Marcus, but it's, <laughs> it's, uh, it's ultimately, awesome. it doesn't really matter the price point of the stuff that you're consuming. If you're, if you're unconsciously consuming, you are, you're living out some version of the consumptive matrix. You're just a cog in a machine and you are trading your time for money. Again, if you're not living off the grid, you're going to need to buy toilet paper. You're unless you're again unless you're foraging or hunting. You're going to need to go to a grocery store. There are parts of commerce that make perfect sense, and at the same time, 
this constant looking outside of yourself for validation and to define yourself, instead of spending your time trying to rearrange the externals of your life to make sure that you're sending your kids to the right looking school, as opposed to the school that educates your kids the best way that it possibly can, instead of worrying about the make or model of your car versus is it a dependable car that'll get you where you want it to go and interact with the environment in a way that isn't aligned, is aligned with your values. All of these things, we, we're at every pivot point, we have a choice to make a choice that is more in alignment with our values or more in alignment with trying to represent a certain external set of values that may or may, may not be in conflict with our internal values. And so again, it just becomes a, a game of diminishing returns. You are, one is uh, trying to control somebody else's opinion of you, which is a fool's errand. There will always somebody be somebody who will judge you as coming up short. You won't send your kids to the right school. You won't be married to the right person. You won't wear the right clothes. You won't drive the right car. You won't live in the right neighborhood. You won't have the right job. You, you, you won't have gone to the right university if you went to a university. All of these things are uh, touch points where somebody could could judge you as coming up short. So you've already lost that competition. You might as well just not participate in it. Right. I heard a spiritual teacher talk one time and he was, he, he said he never understood why someone would run for uh, president because the instant you win, 50% of the population hates you. <laughs> and he's like, that goes all the way back with the exception of George Washington every president after then. And I was like, wow, that's so right here. You do this thing and you do this thing and you do this thing and then you win. And 50% of the people still hate you for that. Yeah. So how big of a problem is this? Do you feel in America? Cause I know with like just talking to my own clients and talking to friends, when you say there's the exercise of like uh, the dream board or the, um, the ideal day, you know, what's your ideal day. And most of the time people start with the stuff. Mm -hmm. So what is that like from your perspective, what does the stuff represent? What are we trying to fulfill as humans with stuff? Well, on some level, if we go back to being hunter gatherers, there is no need to hunt and gather. Certainly for those of us in the developed world, we're not having to forage and hunt for our survival on a daily basis. That instinct is pretty powerful in us. And I think if you don't, bring some awareness, some mindfulness to those instincts, those impulses that are inside of us and be in dialogue with them, they will become perverted like anything else. You know, and I don't mean sexually perverted. I just right. mean, it, they'll be, they're trying to assert themselves and keep us safe. They're just obsolete in some ways. And so there's a natural inclination to nest and to pull things in which is about survival. And then if you look at developed countries, if you look at Western culture, which is again, a rather outwardly facing culture, it is built on uh, external appearances, not internal alignment. Mm. Uh, so some of the more Eastern philosophies and Eastern cultures are rooted in an internal investigation and internal uh, alignment. And the outside world is viewed as a temporal thing that is constantly changing that you have no control over. I mean, you have influence over it, but you can't really control it. So instead of, it, and partly because it's illusory, it's, it's uh, you know, in Buddhism, we would say that it's uh, it's a form of delusion. So you are spending your time basically rearranging delusions and missing <laughs> the opportunity to actually execute on your values on on wow. things that are timeless uh, that's i that's the first time i've ever heard anyone say when you talk to people okay what's wrong what's what's wrong with a hoarder and it's just like well it's the it's the gathering instinct stinked run amok in their yes. life yes that's fascinating yeah. So I mean, and, and I mean, we don't need to go down that rabbit hole. I will just say that particularly for folks who have some sort of a hoarding disorder, 
there's other chemical imbalances and and you know somewhere between neurosis and psychosis course, that, right. that play that is what you and I might be able to navigate our way out of the the obsessive compulsive behavior and the depressive state that they are in they don't they're they're trying to to fix a problem without a lot of tools in their toolkit yeah well, absolutely um so let's back up because you have such an interesting journey to get to this point where you're at now so you started off as a, as an actor. You you were in the professional theater world for twenty years as an actor and as as a theater director. So how where does the pivot come from from being an entertainer into becoming the the most organized man in the world? Yeah. Uh, it, very simply, I was co-producing. An, I, I had been laid off from a theater in Seattle, Washington, in nineteen ninety four. I got uh, I got laid off. No, nineteen ninety six. I got laid off. Um, came back East, co-produced an award ceremony at the Kennedy Center. And one of our awardees was a Nobel Peace Prize winner based in New York. I went to his office to get some photographs for a slideshow that I was putting together when he came up to collect his award. And uh, in the process of going through his photographs, his archive, they were a mess. Things were mislabeled, misfiled. Things had been lent out, never returned. So I spent about two or three hours digging through his files uh, to pull together probably 20 to 30 images. Then we would animate and turn into a slideshow. During the course of that project, that little micro project, his wife called me over into their apartment and said, so what's your story? Who are you? Uh, tell me about you. And I told her, you know. <laughs> I work in the theater. I got laid off in Seattle. I'm moving back to New York, blah, blah, blah. She's like, well, how would you like to organize our photographs for us? And I said, that would be an amazing honor. I would love to do that for you. I still get choked up when I think about it because it's, you know, um, he's somebody I've admired for many, many years. And um, the thought of, of being able to, to be of service to him was wow. uh, quite, quite moving to me. Yeah. So I said, sure, that would be lovely. I would love to do that for you. We made a date for me to go to work. And the day before I was supposed to come to work, uh, um, the, the, their assistant called up and said, something has come up uh, unexpectedly. They have to travel. They'll be back in a month. Let's do it in January. Great. Okay. I, in the meantime, I was doing, I had moved back to New York and I was doing some freelance copy editing and some uh, proofreading. And uh, so the day before January comes around, they call up. We got to reschedule February. February turns into March. In March, they say, when we're ready to proceed, we'll get back in touch with you. So I never go to work for them. Never. But in those four months, I tell every human being that I met, I've got this amazing gig. I'm going to create a comprehensive photographic archive for a Nobel Peace Prize winner. <laughs> and based on that, a friend of mine referred me, who I was doing proofreading with, referred me to her accountant who needed a filing system. And the accountant had worked with primarily performing artists who worked internationally and all over the US. And so she needed a very robust filing system because as you might know, and maybe some of your listeners know, if you're anywhere for more than four or six weeks and you earn income in that uh, jurisdiction, you have to file a non-resident tax return. If you've earned over $600 or whatever the threshold was back then, you are now a non-resident earner in that uh, jurisdiction. So you have to file a tax return. So she needed a tax, she needed a tax filing system that had all of these resources available to her at her fingertips to to meet her her clients wherever they would show up mm. so i built this filing system for her uh, she started referring clients to me people showed up on my doorstep literally with duffel bags full of receipts saying i haven't filed my taxes in five years there's letters in here from the irs i am freaked out i don't want to go to jail can you make sense out of all this paperwork before something terrible happens wow yep and so I would organize all the receipts, all the paper. I'd put it into QuickBooks or Quicken. I'd give it to the accountant. The accountant would file their taxes. These people would say, oh, my God, you are amazing. You saved my life. And they would tell all their friends, you'll never believe what this guy did. I gave him this pile <laughs> of garbage, and he turned it into my tax returns. I'm all caught up. This was amazing. And inevitably, their friends would say, I need somebody just like that. How do I get a hold of this guy? That's how my business began. I was still doing freelance directing and producing at that time uh, in New York. But this work just kept coming and coming. And what I saw, which was a moment of grace, was that 
everything that I was doing in the theater, all of the stories that I was telling, hoping to prompt some sort of epiphany in the audience and, and create some sort of shift in how they were looking at the choices they were making, I was having the chance to do that in a much more smaller scale, right? Like a one-to-one -one scale when, it first, when I first started doing this work. Once I started writing and teaching about it, we were able to, to pivot back towards a one-to-many model. But in the beginning, it was one-to-one. -one, and I just, I saw that the impact I was having on people's lives was super direct, super powerful, and it didn't come bundled up in a metaphor. You didn't have to wonder like, what was this play about? They understood exactly what I was doing when I took a bunch of seemingly unrelated, disparate things, organized them into order, turned them into useful data that the tax accountant could use and solved a problem for them. Wow. So that, that's very similar to with me and how I got into book coaching is that I was doing some marketing consulting with someone and, and she was going up against some competitors way bigger than her. And so I suggested, well, hey, let's, let's do a book. And I took her through a process I used and, and she created her first book in about six weeks and we marketed and it hit number one. And, and I didn't think anything of it, but she posted it on <laughs> Facebook and same thing. All of her friends were like, how did you get this book? And they're like, hey, can you help me with that? And so I just, I started charging more and more money as they went along. And I, you know, I think it was after about the 30th person that had paid me a pretty decent amount to coach them through blank page to fully publish that being the genius marketer that I was charging people money for, I was like, hey, maybe I should yes, market exactly. this. Um, and it's the same thing, then taking out how, how do I take this skill from, from one into, into many? So I appreciate that journey. So you're going along, this becomes a full-fledged business. At what point did you start realizing, man, I really need to write a book about this? Well, you know, I was a playwright as well as an actor and a director. I mean, I have always been a poet. I was always a reluctant writer. It's, it's a very solitary task or yes. series of tasks. And so... <laughs> I have always written, but it has always been the reason that I enjoyed working in the theater because it was a it was a live collaborative experience, and it it broke the isolation of being solitary. So I would I would write as a matter of last resort because I needed to, but not necessarily because I wanted to spend my time doing it. I had been thinking for some time that there was a book in this work that needed to come out, but it took a while to, um, to really codify what is my methodology? Like what, I do it intuitively. I'm, I, I had 20 years of solving problems, right? I mean, taking a script that has a bunch of written instructions and then turning it into a three-dimensional thing that both captured the playwright's vision and also created a meaningful experience for the people who were seeing it, having never read it. So that set of problem solving skills is what I was trying to figure out. How do I translate that into what I do around organization? I, I figured out the organizational triangle, which is basically three steps two of them that we use to get organized and one that we use to stay organized. And that is one home for everything and like with like are how we get organized and something in something out is how we stay organized. And the more I sat and thought about it, the clearer the process became in a way that I could then translate it outward. And somebody who didn't know me, who hadn't heard me talk or about stuff, right? That they would be able to follow along. And also what I recognized in many of the books that had been written before on Stuff Your Life, they would often describe organization, like what you would get at the end of the process, but they were not how-to books. They just assumed that if they told you, this is what a finished closet looks like, you would be able to intuit how to go from the cluttered mess your closet is to this magnificent transformed closet. <laughs> that, that would almost be like writing a, um, a book in the keto space and being like, when you're on keto, this is how you look afterwards. Right, exactly. So go do keto. And they're like, wait, right, what? Exactly. And so I wrote a very um, methodical how to book literally inside the book. I will say, go do this, put the book down, go do this, come back and pick up the book and literally take people step by step. And it, 
it cracked the code for a lot of people who said, I've, I've read other organizing books, and this was the first one that actually showed me how to do it and also addressed all of the story, what I call story or the stuff behind the stuff. Because again, it, it, this is not rocket science. One home for everything and like with like is not a complicated concept. The idea of figuring out the best home to put all of your USB cables is not something you need an advanced degree to figure out. But there's so much <laughs> psychological uh, and emotional barriers and obstacles to um, feeling competent and um, and capable that most of my work needs to address that first. We need to we need to fix the mindset before we can get to the fundamental execution, which moves pretty quickly, right? I mean, once you can see the way to the solution, the execution becomes very easy. It's it's being able to understand if I do this, then this happens, then that happens. Aha, I get that. I can now start to execute. That's fascinating. And, and the mindset I think is really important because I've had this conversation with my wife before where you sort of look at the, this is going to sound off topic, but I promise it ties into what we're, we're talking about here. Is if, if you look at America and, and the obesity problem that we're having in America and people are like, why, why, why? And whether or not it's because of the crap food, I think back to the way I was raised as a kid and when my parents were, and you, you probably had the same experience, you have to eat everything on your plate. Well, so that's how my parents raised me. Like you don't leave yep. the dinner table until your dinner's done. Well, that's because their parents grew up in the great depression where they didn't have food. Exactly. And, and so when they had kids, it was the, like, you don't understand, like we may not have food you have. So, but you get two generations down and we don't, we're not no longer there, but that now there's this habit of an entire society. That's like, we need to eat everything on our plate. And so we're conditioned. You go to, um, someplace like the cheesecake factory and you have this brain that says i can't leave until i eat everything on my plate and you're given a plate that has enough food for five people right but you're conditioned to do that and it's the same with stuff like i remember my grandmother like never threw anything away because she's like and she would say when i was a kid you know we didn't have these things and you figured there, there's a use for everything Sure. And so we now we're in this world of disposable stuff. But you have, again, a generation that's been trained of like, no, everything has a use. And before you know it, we have uh, five bedroom houses that with a two car garage that isn't a garage. It's a it's a storage house. And and a bonus, we also have storage units, too. Yes. And so I think one of the missing things and you're you're spot on with what you just shared. And I would say that another element of that is that when certainly when our grandparents were growing up, food wasn't processed and synthesized the way that it was. I mean, our parents were the first generation where there was like margarine instead of butter and, and all of these Fake things food. that were, you know, like Betty Crocker kits in a box instead yeah. of making a cake from scratch. And all of these things started to fill up our plates with empty calories and pro highly processed foods that are loaded with sugar. And so we've also become addicted to this, to what they're you know what they're suggesting we eat and it's and and the um the same parallel is in stuff right in the olden days you got a suit or two suits and you had a pair of shoes that were made by hand and those shoes lasted forever now we buy shoes at payless shoe store and in 6 months they're garbage so this idea of more is compounded by the fact that many places make garbage because they assume uh, that there's built-in obsolescence and this stuff is going to end up in the trash. So they're not making it with the same quality and they've convinced people that, uh, you know, if, if you could buy something that you would normally spend a hundred bucks for, for $15, you're going to save the 85 bucks. Well, you are, but if you're going to have to buy seven of them in the same time that the hundred dollar thing would last, maybe the $100 thing was a better investment and maybe the $100 thing could actually be repaired as opposed to the $15 thing that was built to be disposable. Mm. That's fascinating. Okay, so you're thinking about your, your book. Now with you and having an organized brain, how did you, or, and also now you have a background of, of writing screenplays so, or, or, or plays. 
how did, was the process of writing the book? How did that differ from when you sat down to write a play? And did you end up having a, creating an organizational process just to help you create your book? Well, I built it off of the table of contents. I didn't know what each chapter, other than the title and the topic and what I was trying to convey in the in the chapter. And each chapter is a is a specific room in your home or a clutter hotspot. Right. Uh, so, other than knowing that I was going to talk about uh, the kitchen and the pantry, I then I started to map out what are the what's the arc of going from disorganized kitchen to organized kitchen? What's the arc of going from messy closets and clo and interacting with your clothes to organized closets? And so I, even though I hated book reports when I was a kid and I hated outlines and I didn't understand how to use them and it felt like busy work. And again, not to beat up on my, uh, my early teachers, I don't think they did a particularly good job of explaining why this was a useful structure. Right. So it just felt like it was a cumbersome thing that stood between me and getting the project done. When it came to writing Unstuff Your Life, the structure actually became the skeleton that I built the book on. And so knowing that, knowing the arc of the book helped me, and then I would just sit down and write. I will tell you that when we first uh, sold the book to Penguin Random House. I mean, it was Penguin at the time. Um, I was terrified that that I was not going to be able to um, deliver 40,000 words. So I uh, had my agent put in the contract that we would deliver a finished manuscript of 30,000 to 50,000 words so that if I only had 30,000, I wouldn't be yeah, penalized, right? <laughs> and I finished up with a manuscript of 120,000 words that they published. I, I mean, my editor loved the book and she she didn't touch the book much at all with her pencil. Uh, wow. But, and so I, I, I went from the structure and then once I climbed into each chapter and started to map out the journey for the client, the customer, the reader, and thinking, okay, what do they need to know? It just organically flowed until I had completed the arc of taking them from where I assumed they were or guessed where they were to where, again, I guessed or assumed they wanted to get to, which was a finished, transformed space. And then just in the editing process, where are redundancies, where uh, where is anything vague or not specific enough and just removing the excess until we got it as lean as we could get it. So you started with a table of contents first. You kind of sat down and said, oh, when I go in and work with someone, these are the steps I go through. And then you sort of use that as the way to start creating the, the process in words. Yes. I, I will say that the table of contents was not really about the process as much as just defining the spaces we would address. Then inside each chapter, it was very much like, okay, if I'm meeting a new client uh, and we're going to do this together, where do we start and how do I take them from here to there? Most definitely. That's fascinating. I have to say, like going through your book, the, that just right out of the first chapter, it felt more like a personal development book than it did about a book on organizing. I had to stop and check, make sure I was, because you, you asked this, <laughs> yes, this series of questions that I was like smacking me in the face of like, wait, is this, is, is this my clutter or is this like me and my own hangups? And now, now, obviously as you get into it, I understand this is the mindset, but you ask, do you feel stuck or do you feel overwhelmed or do you put things off or do you, do you say yes when you say, say no? And I'm like, well, how is this applied in my closet? Um, now obviously I'll, I'll ties in, but I'm fascinated by this concept of, the external clutter is a manifestation of our own internal clutter. Yeah, well, it is. I mean, I wish it weren't the case for folks, but it is. It, it so many people don't stay organized, which is the the goal, right? I mean, getting or a pot of coffee or a, a can of Jolt and some high energy music and anybody can get organized it's staying organized that becomes the problem and that is because we take our eye off of the prize and and you know i don't want to say become lazy but become less mindful of our choices and we 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 live in those 200 lies that say oh 
I'll have more time later. I'm making air quotes. You know, this is the only moment when you actually can, you have any agency, this exact moment. Whenever, whoever's listening to us right now, this is the moment when they have the ability to affect change in their life. Yesterday is gone. Tomorrow is not guaranteed it's going to get here. Now is the only time when you can make a choice that's going to get you some sort of result that you actually want. Every time you defer a decision, every time you put something off until later or someday, you are basically cutting yourself off at the knees. That's fascinating. So you've done this a while. So let's use a yeah. hypothetical. <laughs> this, let's, well, I want to, so let's use a hypothetical uh, situation here. And let's say that there's a very talented um, writer that I, I could or could not be intimately involved with. That if you came into their office, you would see their desk. And on, on the desk, there would be piles of papers, candy, supplements, a day planner, stacks of bills, a couple of water bottles, tissue box, maybe some lotion. And then in the corner, you see a box that was the previous week's papers and stuff that was on the desk that they put Ooh. in the box to say, I'll get to that later. And that was in the box from the box. Right. What does that tell you about that person? <laughs> uh, that they like things to be tidy because they keep clearing off their surface so that they can get to some sort of tabla rasa, some sort of blank slate and, and go from there. Uh, but they, uh, you know, they've, they've got a backwards concept of how they're going to achieve it. The, the, right. The shortcut is just scrape all the crap off the surface and throw it in a box. But if you're not going to actually budget the time to go through those things, you're just creating more clutter for yourself. There's a statistic that says uh, 80% of the paper and the information we hold on to, we're never going to use again. And I can tell you that after 24 plus years of doing this, I've yet to meet the exception to this rule. People, this is where, you know, story starts to crop up for people. People think, oh, I'm the exception. You know, I'm an amazing researcher. These things that I'm holding on to will definitely come in handy, again, in air quotes, someday. Not sure when, but someday this stuff will be definitely useful. So I can't let it go, even though I have no idea what I will do with it today. Mm. Wow. Yeah, isn't that fascinating? And then, uh, and then again, if you work for a company, every time you do something, it, it's like we're all digital. And then at the same time, they go, well, if the cloud goes down, we need the hard copies. <laughs> right. So you got to print out everything. Now you have double information. You have it electronically and on paper. Yeah, well, it, it, the digital world is one of the few places where I actually believe in redundancy because it's always a question of when technology will fail, not if technology will fail. Technology will fail. You're fooling yourself if you think like you're the person who's going to dodge the, the tech crash bullet. Right. your computer will fail. Your hard drive will fail. It's just a machine. It will burn out like everything else. So this is the, this is the one place in your life where you should have redundant backups. I have four backups at any given time of my files. I have, uh, I have a server in the apartment. I have an external hard drive. I have the computer that the file is, uh, you know, native to, and then I'm backing up to the cloud. Wow. But see, you're able to do that because you have a system to organize that. For someone like yes. me, that seems so overwhelming. We're like, ah, I have to remember to back up my external hard drive. <laughs> no, you don't. I mean, you just, there's, a, there's an app that'll do it for you. You don't have to do that. Wow, that's crazy. Okay, so what, what is your today? So you have the book, you speak on this topic, and you, you, obviously you're phenomenal at, at, at sorting this stuff out. So what... You come in, you work with someone, and you get them organized. That's great. Everything's organized now. But what is sort of the, I'm going to use the word side effect of getting organized in your physical space in terms of someone's personal life, their mental space, their emotional space, their, their, their business? Their life is completely transformed. If they, if they have applied the principles, if they've executed people who work with me often say that they always hear me in their head after they've spent any amount of time with me. And all of my students will, will attest to that. Uh, that it, it just, because it is never the stuff, it is always the stuff behind the stuff. Once you start to recognize how you are making choices and, um, what you are valuing by choosing the things that you choose, you suddenly 
recognize the patterns of behavior. Like this is, this plays itself out in my interpersonal relationships. This plays out in my professional career. This, this is how I, because I believe it is pretty true that how you do anything is how you do everything that you'll start to recognize, oh, I, I'm as conflict averse in my interpersonal relationships as I am at my desk. I don't know how to make a decision at my desk. I don't know how to make a decision in my relationship. And this is, there's a bigger problem or challenge to be addressed, which is what do I actually want? What do I believe in? What matters to me? And how do I honor that in my relationships with myself, with my work, with my hobbies, with my pursuits, with my relationships, you start to recognize that you have more agency than you probably are acknowledging. You are not the victim of much and uh, other than probably shitty thinking. And um, you could be making a different choice. And once you know that and you see the impact of well, okay, this is a different choice that I've made about where I'm going to store my uh, technology or where I'm going to put my keys or where I'm going to put my wallet or my mobile phone. This is how I'm going to interact with my children. This is how I'm going to interact with my clients. This is how I'm going to interact with my partner. This is how I'm going to interact with my parents, my siblings, my friends, my neighbors, my, you know, um, my colleagues. You start to recognize that the shift is rippling outward as it should. I mean, that's the the cash and prizes is the transformation to your life it's not just never losing your mobile phone again i mean that's the that's the consolation prize if that's all you ended up with in some ways you would have been shortchanged right i mean we don't want you losing your mobile phone or your car keys but that's the booby prize the the grand prize is you have now re engineered your life to be more in alignment with your values and you're choosing high value activities, relationships, experiences over low value busyness. I mean, it's, it's why I'm now writing my third book calling bullshit on busy, which is, uh, which is to time management, what unstuff your life is to organization. That's awesome. So the, the, mentally, like logically, I, I can understand sort of where you're talking about here. And at the same time, there's part of me is going, that seems too easy, Andrew. Like if I clean, if I organize my closet, what do you mean my life is going to be better too? Like, wait, because again, what you're saying is it's not just the physical stuff. It's the underlying mindset and mind game that's going on along with that. Yeah, well, once you, as you're organizing the closet and you start to actually examine, why am I keeping this old sweatshirt? right? Like, what's the story I'm telling myself? Is it often when we have sentimental attachment to, to garments or any object, half the stuff we're holding onto has a painful memory attached to it, right? Like, <laughs> like, you know, your ex-girlfriend gave you that sweater and it was a bad breakup, but it was a really nice sweater. Every time you put it on, you're reminded of that crappy relationship that did not end well. You can afford to go buy another sweater. Don't keep the sweater that hurts you. And if it hurts you enough every time you look at it that you take it off your body and throw it back in the closet, you aren't wearing it. And it's just a reminder of something. So as you start to plumb these, these objects and the stories behind them, that's where the epiphany occurs. That's where the shift happens. You start, you can't help but recognize, oh God, this is a this is a pattern of behavior. I hold on to stuff that I don't need anymore because of a story that I'm telling myself, which is not even based in fact. So where else am I doing this? Am I doing this in my relationships? So how do I start to address this so that I become, bring myself more in alignment with the things that actually matter to me? It, you, you can't help it. I mean, look, you'd have to be asleep at the wheel to organize your belongings and not have the investigation. Right. So can you share any case studies of, of clients you've worked with that, they were disorganized, you work with them, and then they had all this crazy stuff happen in their business and in their life. 
Oh, well, I mean, there's a woman who just uh, completed the Unstuff Your Life system, which is a, which is a 10-week program that I, I take people through three or four times a year. We just uh, completed one uh, back in November. We'll do another one starting in January. And um, so this woman, uh, we won't give her a name. Yeah, that's fine. Uh, she, she's been trying to get organized for 60 years. She's been married to her high school sweetheart for over uh, 45 years. I mean, I think they met young and they've been married now, I think for over 45 years. Uh, she has tried numerous things. Uh, I don't know all of the things that she did before we met, right? But this was, that was her experience was try, fail, try, fail, try, fail. Never changed herself. Mm. It never looked at herself, just kept trying to rearrange you know, deck chairs on the Titanic, if you will. And uh, when she signed up for her program, for my program, her husband was really upset with her. He's like, God, you just threw another thousand dollars down the toilet. I am, you know, this is not going to work. And by the third day of the program, he said to her, you're different. Something about this is different. And three um, days, and, three days yeah, into it. Yeah. I mean, let alone 10 weeks. And, uh, at the end of the program, they have several small businesses um, and um, they, you know, they're not wealthy, but they have some money, uh, enough money that they have it with a financial advisor that they have not been happy with for multiple years, but it, they were both too busy doing what they were doing and not being efficient about their time and where they're putting their attention that they, they felt hamstrung and they couldn't get away from the financial planner and do things themselves. So at, by the time she had completed this program, uh, her husband had so much confidence in her ability to actually do what she said she was going to do when she said she was going to do it, which was new behavior for her, you know, for 60 years of not doing it, 10 weeks of doing it, that she took over doing the books for the businesses that they ran. And she had enough time that she could start to manage their, you know, modest portfolio. And, and her husband, again, you know, without getting into traditional gender roles, like he was the boss who could make the decision, but because they were partners, he agreed that she had the wherewithal to do this, that she wouldn't become overwhelmed by it and and buckle under the weight or the responsibility of it, that she actually had the, the strength and the wherewithal to, to rise to the occasion and move these projects forward. So, I mean, it, it's, a, it's transformed their relationship as both as business partners, but also as a husband and wife. And it has completely changed how they are running their businesses, how they're running their household. And, um, she has set herself free from decades of poor, unconsidered choices that consistently yielded uh, unsatisfactory results. Man, that that's that's phenomenal. This is cool. So, I, and she's I, not exceptional. I mean, you know, she I I love her, and these are not outlier results. The results are typical if you follow the process. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> so what I love here is that the where you've evolved and progressed to with your career and your business and your teachings is like you're it's almost you like you said you started with like the sort of the three pillars and I and and you have three books. And I sort of feel like these these books are the three pillars because we're starting with the clutter and but and that's forcing sort of a a deep dive personal inspection of self but then but now that we've we've cleared away the clutter there's still this this myth of i'm too busy mm -hmm. and now you've got this calling bullshit on busy so i love the fact that i can go through one of your books and work on something and that really sort of sets me up to now where i can actually tackle the busyness because and maybe you're going to cover this in your book but my, my brain goes wow like what research is there showing that the busyness is actually the mask because we're surrounded by clutter and that's what's keeping us busy. So when you get rid of that, now you've got this whole other, whole other level. So how has the process then, now that you're on your third book, has your process of how you approach it, has it changed from, from this first one? Or, or are you following something almost that's very similar? 
Uh, I'm following the same the same recipe. So the uh, calling you're setting yourself with 30,000 words and you're going to end up with 110. (laughs) No, uh, this book, I want to be 40,000 words because it's a time management book. I think that I want people who live in the in the story of busy to be able to move through the book. So every chapter will give you two to three immediately actionable things that you can do. It's based on the seven deadly time thieves, uh, which are my, you know, I mean, trademarked seven deadly time thieves. Uh, uh, Interruptions, overcommitting, multitasking, uh, poor planning, emails, meetings, and procrastination. So we're going to take on those seven time thieves and dismantle the the lies and stories we tell ourselves about each of those and uh, give you instantly actionable ways to uh, reverse your historic choices around all of those things. Wow, that's fascinating. So what what's the goal for this new book? When when are you expecting to have that done and published? I am not sure about a publication date. I am, uh, I'm wanting to have a finished manuscript by uh, May of 2021. Nice. Yeah. So what's your process? How do you, what are the different ways that someone can get involved with you and your company and, and how can they work with you? Sure. Well, they can come to andrewmellon.com, M-E-L-L-E-N. Um, and, uh, they can, so I do work both with businesses and I also work with individuals. So there's, uh, you can you can take an, a one-off class at Unstuff University. You can take the Unstuff Your Life System 10-week program that I teach live. It's not a drip-delivered course. We discovered that when one of the gifts of COVID was, we were struggling with a drip delivered course and not seeing the results because what was missing was both my cheerleading and the accountability that you get having to show up every week and, and do the homework or not do the homework. And so we decided to take the price point up a little bit, but make it a live experience so that the cohort feels connected to each other. You're not in the vacuum of your own thinking. Again, it's, it, it was, I wanted to build something that I could set and forget, but the people who need the help, if they could do it by themselves without somebody holding their hands, they, I mean, you could read the book, you could spend 20 bucks and read on stuff your life. And if you can follow the book, you can do it. Right. But if you need extra handholding and accountability, you're going to need that live. You're not going to be able to get that from a video of me saying, Hey, what did you do today? Did you do your homework? If not (laughs) click here, right? I mean, that's just, it's, it's too passive of an experience. So we created the unstuff your life system 3.0 so that we could take people through the, the process live. And I'm super psyched about, like I said, what I shared with you about that one woman, the results that we're getting as a result of teaching the class live are mind blowing. I mean, people are, they're sobbing and telling me about how much their life has changed, which is exactly going back to the theater. It was the exact result that I wanted somebody to have in a dark room at the end of two hours, you know, watching a play. So I'm thrilled that they're finally, that I'm finally able to prompt that sort of epiphany and transformation in folks in something that's far more immediate. And, uh, you know, again, without a metaphor sitting between me and the information. So there's Unstuff University for one-off classes. There's the Unstuff Your Life system for a 10-week program. There's individual coaching that is available uh, one-to-one. There's uh, speaking for conferences and trade shows and and uh, then also training programs that I've done for uh, from small businesses, small nonprofits, all the way up to the Metropolitan Museum of Art, Goldman Sachs, and the New York Mets. Those are all clients of mine. So uh, so how does this process work on a business level? I can get, I understand it from like a personal level of like I have my office or my closet or my kitchen. But right. when you come in with businesses, how, is it like by department or are you teaching people how to essentially organize their own personal space? It all depends. In, in in a business application, if somebody isn't uh, engaging me to do a, 
a productivity time management training, which is often what it is about. It's often some version of, of my uh, training around calling bullshit on busy. If they're looking for an organization makeover, it's either focused on the physical plant or it's focused more on the org chart and roles and responsibilities and looking for inefficiencies and redundancies in staffing and um, uh, job descriptions and responsibilities. Often as businesses grow, it, they look like houses that were not designed by an architect to have seven rooms, but now there are seven rooms. So job descriptions grow out of uh, somebody doing something, but there was never a role clearly defined it just there was more work than one person could do. So the second person started to take over responsibilities, but there's no cohesion there. There's no focus, there's no clarity. So what I will do with companies is take them through a series of um, uh, exercises to determine what the org chart needs to look like to accomplish the kinds of things they want to do, regardless of what people are doing. And and I'm not like a like an M and A kind of guy who comes in, and I'm not looking to um, uh, force people out of their jobs. We we try to uh, you know if you think about Jim Collins and the idea of being in the right seat on the right bus, the idea is the people who are there can probably do what needs to be done. They might not be what they're currently doing. But we just need to figure out what does the business need and then who here can do what the business needs and then pivoting them into those roles so that things are lined up rather than there's all of those gaps and then there's redundancies. Mm. Wow, this is fascinating. Yeah. All right, so it's andrewmellon.com. Um, Books on Amazon and Barnes and Noble everywhere, as well. You know, independent yeah. bookstores, everywhere you could possibly look for a book. That's where you will find Unstuff Your Life. Uh, the Most Organized Man in America's Guide to Moving is a Kindle. So it's a small book. It's a, I think it's just 35 or 40 pages. It's a how-to-move book. So if you need to relocate, it's a great little Seems book. Seems fairly timely for our, uh, our, our yes. age. <laughs> <laughs> and then uh, we'll see, you know, I'm sure that uh, Calling Bullshit on Busy will be available everywhere you can find a book as well. Well, when that when you get ready with that one, this uh, when you're launching, this bring you back on. Perfect. We'll, we'll dive deep into that one. But Andrew, thank you so much for the time today. This has been a, a fantastic conversation. Oh, it's my pleasure. Thanks, Travis. Hey, it's Travis Cody. Thanks for listening to the Just Right Show, and I want to make sure you're plugged into everything we've got going on. Go to traviscody.com/forward/slash/show and join the email list so you can get notified when new episodes come out. Plus, you can find links to the transcripts of every episode we've done in the past. You can also grab a free copy of my best-selling books that share even more details on how you can up-level your own writing skills. Finally, if you enjoyed the show, I'd consider it a personal favor if you'll leave me a review on iTunes and Spotify. Thanks for listening, and I'll see you on the next episode.